Amen. Thank you, Libby. Um, If you want to grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 24, that would be fantastic. We are starting today a new sermon series called Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus in the Old Testament. So you may wonder why we're starting in Luke's Gospel and not the Old Testament. Um, Well, today we're going to be looking at what Jesus says about himself in the Old Testament to the disciples. And I'm going to hopefully set up the series today and for the next three weeks. So Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be reading from verse 13 um, together through to verse 35. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. That's two two disciples of Jesus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognising him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they could not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if they were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those staying with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus recognised them when he broke bread. This is the word of the Lord. So as I said earlier, today we are starting a new teaching series called Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking for the next month at this theme together. And the title of our talk today is Jesus on Every Page. How Jesus claims that every single page of the scriptures are about him, point to him and picture him. Now today, in terms of the Bible, we're going to be all over the place. So do keep a Bible or a Bible app or something open in front of you, because we're going to be jumping from New Testament to Old Testament, from Genesis, all, all over the place. So keep, keep a Bible open um, in front of you. In the passage that we're looking at today, 
you may, as I said earlier, think this is a strange title for um, a series on Jesus in the Old Testament when we're looking at Luke 24. But in our passage today, some disciples are walking to Emmaus and they're talking about all of the things that have happened regarding Jesus. About They've been talking about his amazing teaching, his miracles, the fact that he raised people from the dead. And then they were talking about the fact that he'd been arrested, put on trial, and crucified and now they're like what on earth has happened they're disappointed perhaps they even feel let down by Jesus and Jesus Jesus just appears on the road with them and it always makes me laugh when I read this account because you know they're talking about all you know they're talking about this person Jesus who's done all these amazing things and Jesus says what do you mean tell me more as if he doesn't know already and they then begin to tell tell Jesus all the things that he had done And at the the end of their account, look at verses 25 and 26. Jesus said, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, Jesus is saying the whole of the Bible, all of the scriptures had been leading up to this point. If only they had eyes to see it. Now, before we go any further, just look at verse 32 with me. When they realised that it was Jesus, they say this to each other. Were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, the disciples here are articulating in Luke 24 something that I want to be true for each of us here at St. Thomas's that when the scriptures are opened, we might be able to say, were our hearts not burning within us? That every single week as we gather in small groups and we pray for one another and we pray, come Holy Spirit, and we ask to encounter the Father's love and we open the Bible together, we might be able to say to one another, were our hearts not burning within us on Tuesday night as we opened the Bible together? Wouldn't it be fantastic if every morning when you started the day with God, that you might be able to know that your heart was burning within you and that it would continue to burn every second of the day. There's a prayer that we often pray every morning in Anglican morning prayer. You know it well because I quote it a lot. It goes like this. May the light of your presence, O God, set our hearts on fire with love for you now and forever. My prayer, church, is that that would be our story every time we open the scriptures, every time we gather, that we might be able to say, our hearts are burning with love for God. Amen. So before we go any further, I just want us to think about what is the Bible? What is this thing that whenever we gather in small groups or on Sundays or in our quiet time with God every day, whatever it is, what is this thing that's causing our hearts to burn within us? Now, you may have been told that the Bible is a little bit like God's instruction manual or that it's a little bit like a will. You know, God's left us some instructions for how to deal with things until Jesus returns or something. Or that it's a little bit like a score left by a composer, you know, like Mozart composing some amazing score. And then all we do is just follow along and, you know, play the notes that have been left. Well, I guess there's some truth in all of those metaphors, but it's so much more than that. Most of the time, we just don't know what to do with it. 
I have got um, very generously um, provided for me in lockdown by the Church of England a fantastic computer. Um, it's upstairs in my office at the minute. I'm sure that it can do millions and millions of things. And I only ever use it to write talks, do emails, and do Zoom calls or, you know, what, what, whatever it is, and plan, plan my working day. I use it all the time for the same three or four things. And I suspect that our attitude to the Scriptures is a little bit like that. God can do millions and millions and unlimited amount of things in us and through us as we pray and as we read the Bible. And yet our approach to the Scriptures is that we'll only ever use it to do the same two or three things in us. Tom Wright, the theologian um, Tom Wright, says that to be a Christian while not letting the Bible do all of these things in us is like being a concert pianist but sitting behind a piano with your hands tied behind your back and trying to play, you know, trying to play the piano like that. We forget some of the major things about the Scriptures and so we don't see God doing all of the things in us and through us that he could. And one of the major things that we forget is that the Bible, according to Jesus, is a book whose main subject is God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. The purpose of the scriptures are to reveal God's love to us, that we might know the Holy Spirit revealing Jesus, who reveals to us the love of the Father. As we were thinking about last week, as we thought about adoption, that we've been adopted as children of God. So the first thing that I want us to see this week is that the Bible starts with Jesus. Now look at verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explains to them what was in all the scriptures concerning himself. So here's Jesus teaching the Bible to the disciples. And Luke tells us that starting with Moses and all the prophets, he's telling them that all of the, that the scriptures are about him. Now, when you see the phrase Moses and the prophets in the New, Test in the New Testament, that's a first century colloquialism that refers to the Old Testament. That was a nickname for the Old Testament scriptures, Moses and the prophets. That is the name that was given to the Old Testament. Now, Moses is believed to have written the first five books of the Bible. Certainly, the disciples on the road to Emmaus would have believed, would have believed that. So when, Jesus says, when Luke says that Jesus started with Moses and the prophets, do you see what Jesus is claiming here? He is saying that the whole of the scriptures are about him. From the very beginning, the Bible is a book about Jesus Christ. Now, it is not just here that Jesus makes these claims. So in John chapter 8... Verse 56, if you, you can turn to this if you want. John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. And in this conversation that Jesus is having with the religious teachers of his time, Jesus says to them, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, Abraham lived hundreds, thousands of years before the incarnation, and yet Jesus is saying that Abraham somehow knew him and saw him. Jesus is making the outrageous claim that Abraham knew him. Now, earlier on in John's gospel, when um, Jesus is engaging the Pharisees in John chapter five, 
The Pharisees are talking, the religious leaders are talking about the scriptures. And Jesus says to them, Look, you study the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Now, what was the scriptures that they were referring to? The Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, well, you think that in these things you have eternal life, and yet you don't see that all of it is about me. Now, the scriptures do contain what we need for eternal life because they point to Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, for the past few weeks, we've been subjected to some um, interesting details about the life of Prince Harry in his autobiography, Spare. I actually find the title of that book incredibly heartbreaking. I don't know if, if you do. Spare. Do you know that for those of us that believe in Jesus, we are never spare. In fact, we're heirs to the entire kingdom because of Jesus dying for us, the Spirit adopting us um, into the Father's family that we might know the Father's love forever. We are heirs with, the whole king, with Christ for the whole kingdom of God. Anyway, Prince, Prince Harry's autobiography, we've been sub subjected to all kinds of details. And the starting point of his book can only be from the 15th, 15th of September, 1984, because that was when he was born. And in fact, he claims that he can't remember much before his 12th birthday. So I think it starts, the details of his life start around the age of 12. Now, if I was writing an autobiography about myself, my autobiography would start on the 3rd of February, 1987, because that is my birthday. I was born on the 3rd of February. So my autobiography would start then. If Jesus was writing an autobiography though, when would it start? Well, it's difficult to say because Jesus has always been around. He has always existed. In fact, one of Jesus's biographers, one of the people that wrote the, one of the books about Jesus's life, John, when John starts his biography about Jesus's life, when would you expect it to start? At Jesus's baptism? in the manger, perhaps with the angel Gabriel coming to, to visit and telling, you know, the angel Gabriel telling Mary that she was going to give birth to Jesus. But when does John's biography about Jesus start? Well, if you turn, flick back a few more pages to John chapter one, this is how John starts his biography about the life of Jesus. He says, in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's how John starts his biography about the life of Jesus, in the beginning. Now, if you've got your Bible open, turn right back to Genesis 1. I told you we were going everywhere this morning. Genesis 1 starts like this. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Do you see that the Bible starts with the same words that John starts his biography about Jesus? What's the claim that John is making? That the whole of the scriptures are about Jesus, are revealing Jesus to us. Now keep these verses in Genesis 1 open in front of you. Look at these verses. 
In the very first few verses of the scriptures, you see a picture of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in case you needed some convincing that Jesus is on every page of the Bible, it starts in Genesis chapter one. You have the Spirit hovering over the waters. You've got God creating, you've got Jesus, the word speaking things into being. John says that Jesus is the word of God. Right at the start of Genesis, you've got this picture of God in three persons. From the very beginning, Jesus is present. Now think about what Paul says in Colossians 1. So this is not some new idea that the church has just made up in the last few hundred years or, you know, when we decided that whatever whatever it is that the the church has taught over the past 2,000 years. From the very word go, the disciples of Jesus believe this to be true. So this is Paul writing just a handful of years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Colossians 1, Paul says this, the Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus created all things. They were created through him and for him. And do you know that that means that right now, Jesus is holding you together. Jesus is holding your life with all of its joys and pains and difficulties and sorrows. Jesus, by his power, he created you, thought of you, spoke you into being and is holding you together right now. Now, what are we seeing the Bible say about itself in these verses? What are we seeing the Bible is saying about Jesus in these verses? Well, we're seeing that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. That's the the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. In other words, he's the beginning and the end. He's the A and the Z or the Z if you're American. He's He's the Alpha and Omega, beginning and the end. But he's not just the A and the Z. He's the B, C, D, E, F, G, and all the way through. Every single page of the scriptures are about Jesus. The Bible begins with Jesus. Now, the second thing I want us to see is this. That Jesus, along with the Father and the Spirit, they're the main characters of the story of scripture. The whole of scripture testifies that there's one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when we're thinking about the Old Testament, we often don't think Jesus is there. Yes, it speaks about the Father a lot. We, we, we see that and the Holy Spirit's everywhere. We don't often see where Jesus is present in the Old Testament. Now, often when I preach, sometimes when I preach, you'll hear me pray something like this. Father, as we study your written word, may your Holy Spirit reveal to us the living word, Jesus Christ. The point of studying the scriptures, of reading the Bible together, is not just to 
you know, give us head knowledge. It's not just to make us sound academically clever or make us more theologically erudite. The whole point of reading the written word is that we might have an encounter with God, that we might encounter the living word, Jesus Christ, by his spirit, that we might know the Father's love for us. And this is why the disciples' hearts were burning within them as they were on that road and Jesus was teaching them the Bible. Jesus is one of the main characters. Glenn Scrivener, who's done some fantastic work on Jesus in the Old Testament, I just, if you want to know any more about this, just Google Glenn Scrivener, Jesus in the Old Testament. There's blog after blog after blog, blog um, on, on this that he's written. Um, he says that it's very easy to picture Jesus being like a substitute in a football match. So the Old Testament, when the Old Testament ends, that's half time if you like. And suddenly in the New Testament, a new character enters the pitch and it's Jesus. And he's somehow like some substitute that enters the pitch then. But it's not like that at all. Now again, John says this. So back to John chapter one, look at verse 18. John chapter one, verse 18. John says this. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son. Now, what on earth is going on here? How can John say that nobody has seen God? Didn't Adam and Eve walk with God in the garden? Didn't Moses encounter God at the burning bush? Didn't Joshua fall before God in Joshua 5, before the walls of Jericho fell down and Joshua fell on his face and worshipped God. What's John on about that nobody has seen God? Didn't Jacob wrestle with God? What on earth is going on here? Well, what John is saying in this verse is this. No one has seen the Father, but people have seen Jesus. In the Old Testament, people saw Jesus. When Adam and Eve walked in the garden, they were walking with the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, God's son. When Moses encountered God in the burning bush, he encountered Jesus Christ. Jesus says as much in John's gospel to the Pharisees. No one has seen God the Father, but God the Son is always making him known. Jesus has been doing this for all of eternity, making the Father known, that we might know that we're adopted as God's children and know that we have a heavenly Father who loves us so much. That's what Jesus came to do, to reveal the Father to us. Now again, what does this mean? It means that Jesus is present through all of the scriptures. Next week, for the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at three different ways in which Jesus is present in the Old Testament. Next week, um, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is one of the main characters of the scriptures because the Old Testament is basically one big promise about the coming of Jesus. Lee is going to be speaking to us about that next week. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of very specific prophecies about the coming of Jesus in the Old Testament that are all fulfilled in his life. Jesus is present in the Old Testament in a second way. He appears 
We call it a Christophany, where Jesus literally appears as the character interacting with people, being seen with people. We're going to look at that in two weeks. And then in three weeks, we're going to look at how Jesus is patterned or pictured in the Old Testament. So how Melchizedek or even Abraham or any of, any of these people are really just patterns and pictures of who Jesus came to be. Tim Keller put it like this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is given to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, through, who though innocently slain, has blood that now cries for our acquittal, not our condemnation. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. While God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son your only son whom you love from me, now we can say to God, now we know that you love me because you did not withhold your son, your one and only son whom you love from me. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, and so it goes on and on. We're going to be looking at how Jesus is pictured and patterned in the Old Testament. Jesus promised next week, Jesus present the week after, and Jesus patterned in three weeks. Now for the last five minutes or so of my talk, why on earth does all of this matter? Why are we taking a month to look at Jesus in the Old Testament? A few years ago, I was on holiday in Spain in um, beautiful Andalusia. And um, I decided that my reading for the holiday was that I was going to read the book of Exodus. And as I was sat on my sun lounge around the pool, I think I read the book of Exodus four times maybe while I was on holiday in Spain for the week. And by the time I got to the third or fourth reading of Exodus, I just began to see Jesus absolutely everywhere. Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, in the story the promise of Jesus all the way through, patterns of Jesus on every single page. And it completely changed the way that I read the scriptures. Reading Exodus, I was somehow encountering the living word Jesus Christ and the whole of the narrative of, of, of Exodus just came alive to me. I was so excited to read it. And that then changed the way that I read the entire Old Testament. I just saw Jesus everywhere. Now, when that happens, the Bible somehow then becomes alive to us in a really real way. God fills us with his spirit. Jesus is revealed so that we might know the love of the Father. This is the reason that the Bible has so much power. Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, he wrote this. You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all of civilization to pieces, to turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. I'll read that again. 
You Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all of civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, and yet you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fantastic today if we committed together as a church family to not treating the Bible as though it is just another story? as though it's just a little bit, it's like Harry Potter, but just a little bit better because it contains a lot more spiritual truth or, you know, whatever it might be. That is not what the Bible is. It's a book that can change us and transform us and turn the world the right way up through us because it causes our hearts to burn within us. That when we read it, it somehow reads us. And because of that, we're told who we are in the light of who God is and we have encounters with God every single time we read it. That's one reason, one reason I'm excited about this series. Another reason is that you may have had this said to you perhaps in small groups or on alpha courses you've been on or just maybe even you thought this, maybe you think this now or you thought it in the past, that somehow the God of the Old Testament is different to the God of the New Testament you may find yourselves sometimes only reading the New Testament in your quiet time because the Old Testament is just too complicated and too difficult. And it's just a completely, you may even think that it's a completely different God that's revealed in the Old Testament. But we believe, don't we, church, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. And therefore, the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. Now, I want to introduce you to um, somebody, a heretic called Marcion. He was a very early heretic in the life of the church. Um, he was born in Turkey in 85 AD, and he was the son of a bishop, which just goes to show that just because you're brought up in the church or in a vicarage or whatever, that you'll, you'll grow up to know and love Jesus. Um, he was the son of a bishop, and he grew up to become a teacher. But he went pretty wayward. Um, he came up with a list of all of the books that he thought con constituted scripture. Um, and the problem with his list was that he rejected the entire Old Testament as being the word of God. He said that none of it was really scripture. And his reason for thinking this was that because he didn't think the Old Testament was about Jesus. And so he rejected the whole thing as God's word. Now, needless to say, the bishops got their act together and disciplined him, and he was pretty soon um, excommunicated by the church, and he went on to set up a cult, which died out, thankfully, a few centuries later. I want to put it to us, though, that the cult of Marcion hasn't really died out at all. In fact, the cult of Marcion, I think, is alive and well, and is kicking in the church of Jesus Christ today. Now, we may not be professing Marcionites. We may not actually go around saying, well, the Old Testament isn't really scripture because it's not really about Jesus. But in the way that we behave, we behave like Marcionites. We say that the God of the Old Testament is too different. It reveals different things about the character of God to the New Testament. And somehow, you know, when Jesus appeared, as if Jesus just suddenly appeared, that everything changed. That post-Jesus, God is somehow different. Now, we may not articulate thing, these things out loud, but we somehow think them in our heads. We behave as if the Old Testament isn't really God's word. 
Now, what I want us to see through this series over the next four weeks or so is that everything that is taught in the New Testament is also taught in the Old Testament, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we see Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. It enlarges our vision of God's grace and mercy and redemption. It enlarges our vision of our place within the story of God. And it will help us encounter the love of God and cause our hearts to burn within us every single day. Now this week in small groups, I'm gonna give you a few different passages to look at in the scriptures to help set us up for the rest of this series together. So one, for example, that I might give you to look at, just to give you a heads up, is Exodus chapter three, where Moses encounters Jesus in the burning bush. And what I'd love us to be able to do as we open the scriptures together by ourselves and with our small groups is as we're reading the Old Testament to see where Christ is pictured or patterned, where he's present and where he's promised. Now I'll just choose the burning bush because it's a well-known story. Moses is in the wilderness. He stumbles across this burning bush and the bush speaks to him, reveals that, the, that, it's, that he's God. The bush is somehow a theophany, an appearance of God, and says that his name is I Am and says to Moses, you're going to lead my people out of slavery. Now, where do we see Christ present? Well, we see Jesus present because he says, I am. What's the name that Jesus gives himself in the New Testament? I am who I am. Moses is encountering the person of Jesus. Where is Jesus promised in Exodus chapter three? Well, Jesus is sending Moses and, and tells Moses to say to them, say to God's people, tell them that I've come down to rescue them. What is it that Jesus is ultimately going to do? Come down to rescue us. The Exodus story is a promise of Jesus coming to liberate us. Where is Jesus patterned in Exodus chapter three? Well, here's Jesus encountering God in the form of a burning bush, encountering Jesus in the form of a burning bush. Jesus brings holy fire. Jesus is not just gonna baptize us with water, but with fire. It's a picture of judgment, of purification, of holiness. And so when we read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus present, promised and patterned, somehow we suddenly see Jesus on every single page. Now, I'm really passionate about this. I'm really excited about this. And my prayer for all of us is that we would encounter Jesus on every page. That as we read the scriptures, our hearts would burn within us. That we might be filled with the Holy Spirit that the Son might be revealed to us so that we can know the love of the Father for us. Now, in just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And as we celebrate communion, I want us to think about the same things. Where is Jesus present? Well, he's present because where two or three are gathered, he promises to be present. He's somehow present in the bread and wine so that we can encounter Jesus. Where is Jesus patterned? in communion. Well, I'm going to bless the bread, break the bread and give you the bread. Jesus was blessed, broken and given for us so that we can be blessed, broken and given for the world. That's the whole point of communion. 
Um, we are in Christ. Jesus appears as a burning bush so that we can be set on fire for the sake of the world. It's not just about encountering Jesus who's fire, but we might become like him. The same is true in communion. Where is Jesus promised in communion? Well, it's a foretaste of the heavenly banquet that's gonna go on forever. On every page of scripture, Jesus is present, patterned and promised. And may our hearts burn within us as we read them this week and always. Amen.